So first I like to, to make a little announcement. And this is to really be very careful, especially if you share a room, uh, that you do not have any electronic equipment like a phone or an iPad or even a, a clock that beeps or light in the night. Because if you have a really, if you are a heavy sleeper, you might not notice, but everybody else might. So this would be kind of, it's like, uh, I don't know why uh, Stevens, my husband, iPad lit up in the middle of the night. I have a light sleep, so I wake up. He snores, but it's his, and we don't seem to find a way to stop this happening. So if you're sharing room with especially other people, it would be nice to make sure that if you have an electronic device, it's muted, it doesn't make any light, doesn't make any beep, and then everybody can have a good night's sleep. So just to, to be careful with that. Thank you. Because however mindful you might be, I think uh, we don't want to be woken up in the night by beeps. There is limits to the mindfulness. <laughs> so uh, tonight I like to look at mindfulness in terms of it's very important that we're not trying to be, in a way, mindful just to be mindful. We're not trying to be present just to be present. But because by being mindful, we might notice certain tendencies which might create harm to ourselves and others. So to see that we are kind of mindful for kind of like a wider, within a wider perspective. And it's kind of looking, because what uh, uh, was seen was that there is, in a way, different point in which there could be a choice, in which there could be freedom. And I would say a point of freedom from grasping, freedom from reacting, freedom from amplifying, but within the context that if we amplify, if we react, then it causes suffering to ourselves and others. And so the mindfulness, the fact that we train in being mindful of the breath is not to become the best watcher of the breath and get you know, the little gold Olympics of that or how many sound I hear. But by being more mindful, then we can start to notice contact. Because this is what is interesting in a retreat, which we then can take in daily life. But because in a way we slow down, there is a silence, there is a space, and we're not rushing and having different responsibility and different things like that, then we can start to see that we have contact through the senses. So we hear, we smell, we taste, we have sensation, we have contact with the thought, we have uh, contact with the sound. So, and so, a lot of the time, the contact don't matter very much. But some contact is like, we have the contact and we grasp. And that then creates, in a way, you could say a process. The grasping itself, the sticking itself, as a kind of like a process, which then can lead to harm, to difficulty for ourselves and others. So in, so in a way, the mindfulness is to kind of start to notice those points of contact and then to start to notice the grasping at the point of contact. And then also to notice, and that will be toward the end of the talk, 
that you have contact, there is a principle, the process of grasping, and then upon the contact, you also have like a tonality, you have like a feeling. So the contact is not just kind of contact, there is more to it, something else happened, which can add to the grasping. But first, let's look a little bit more at the grasping. How does it work? And so, we hear something, we see something, whatever. And often, we grasp, and within the grasping, we identify. That's why um, often Chris has talked about identification. And it's, of course, it's happening to us. It's not happening to somebody else. So it's very natural to identify. But in a way, what we're trying to do with the meditation, with the mindfulness, is kind of like to create a little more space. So then the grasping is not so fast. And then we can... In a way, we can creatively engage instead of identifying. So maybe I'll uh, give you a little, uh, this is my little party trick. Some of you have seen it, but lots of you have not, so that's why I'm doing it. So let's say this is something precious to me. So either it's gold or diamond, or it's the greatest truth of the universe, whatever. It's kind of important for me. And so it belongs to me. And so because it belongs to me, because it's precious, then I am going to hold on to it. So in a way, I'm going to grasp at it so that I can keep it near to me, nobody else can take it, and so I do this. If I do this, two things happen. The first thing is that I'm going to get a cramp in the arm. Because in a way, as soon as you grasp, you create tension. So it's kind of one of the signal. This is a very interesting. Mindfulness can help us to see signal of grasping. And often if there is tension, we're grasping at something. But there is something much more important which happens when I do this for any length of time is the fact I cannot use my hand for anything else. So I'm stuck to what I'm grasping at. That I think is very important to notice. And mindfulness will help us to notice that. So then, what is a solution? First solution, you can cut the hand, but that's a little drastic. You know, that I would say is kind of like asceticism. I mean, some people choose to do something similar to that, to stop the grasping. Next thing, often we do this, we try to get rid of the object, because we have the impression that the object say, come, 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 you really want me. But I mean the object is just the object. It comes upon condition. I mean, sometime, the other day, I was um, in this station in Paris, uh, Gare Saint-Lazare, and the, I don't know, the iPhone 256 or something of that nature had come out, obviously, because there was the whole all the pillars of the station was filled with this huge kind of sign, kind of brightly lit of the latest iPhone. And so kind of, you know, it's to give you the impression, mm, you want me, don't you think? I mean, there were so many of them, it's kind of, you could not avoid them. So it's kind of like, you get the impression that the, the, the kind of the stickiness is in the object. And so you think, oh, if I get rid of the object, then I'll be fine. But I mean, the object is not doing anything. So in a way, the solution, I mean, one of the solutions, is what we do here, is actually to learn to open our hands, so to de-grasp. And then instead, 
we can creatively engage. We can still have the object, we can share it, we can put it here, we can do something else. And then there can be some freedom. So in a way, when you have this process of grasping, first you have the contact. You see, you hear, you smell, you taste, etc. And then upon the grasping, you have the identification. I, me, mine. This is about me, this belongs to me, etc., etc. And then you kind of like limit yourself around it. You kind of solidify around what you grasp at. You limit yourself to it. And then, and that's what is the most dangerous you amplify what you're grasping at. And that's why it's so difficult, in a way, to deal with a grasping moment. Because generally, you have this amplify, as soon as you grasp, you have this amplifying effect. And at the same time, a diminishing effect of our creative potential. So in a way, the mindfulness, the meditation, is to help us not to, not, it's not to stop the contact, but it's actually to try to dissolve enough of the grasping, enough of the identifying, so that then you don't have that amplifying effect. And the amplifying effect, we can notice, again, signal, we can notice in two ways. One way is what I call proliferation. The other way is what I would call exaggeration. To see that, and that's something we can again notice sometimes when we're sitting, when we're walking. You see something and you could just be with it. I mean, at the moment, this is something uh, often when I come on retreat at Gaia House. Uh, one of the things I kind of look at are the slippers. I am always looking for the perfect slippers. Some kind of, at the moment, I have seen a pair. <laughs> so kind of the other disappear, but those, ooh, those one. And I'm tempted, ooh, I like to try them out. So, so I see something, ooh, I want it. And then I could kind of, you know, go into the proliferation with like, wow, they're fantastic. Where can I get them? You know, I could get two or three pairs and then my feet would be really warm, but I'm not sure about the color. And I mean, you can, you can really kind of go off. Or you can see something beautiful here. I mean, there is so many beautiful things to see. I mean, the way they've arranged the garden, you know, you have this beautiful... I presume you've all noticed now we have this little beautiful little sitting place. And they kind of really arrange it nicely. So you might say, ooh, this is really nice little sitting place. Ooh, I like to have something like that. But maybe I live in a flat. I would need to, to, to have a garden. How am I going to get a garden? <laughs> you know, maybe I should sell my flat. And, but then, well, so in a way, you move from just admiring this beautiful little bench and it's very cute and pretty and just enjoying it through proliferating. It doesn't mean you cannot get change flat, but you can see you move from the thing itself to kind of like proliferation around it. You go into abstraction instead of being with the contact itself. That's what often happens. You kind of see then suddenly you're not with the experience, but you're kind of with this kind of proliferated story around the contact, what you hear, what you see, what you taste. I mean, I don't know if you are, we have this uh, amazing cook at the moment, and I love the little labels, you know, from different parts of the world. We have this wonderful food, and you might, mmm, I like this recipe, you know. What could I do about it? Or you could put this one, or you could put that one, and whoops. And in a way, you go away from the taste, the smell, the sight, enjoying the creativity of the cook, to, again, abstraction. 
So we often do that when we grasp. We go into abstraction. When creative engagement is, oh, kind of, Chris has talked a lot about the appreciation, being with, kind of caring for, being grateful for. And so kind of being within the experience and also seeing it in a wider context of who made it, how it came to us, the gratefulness, instead of me, mine, how can I acquire this? Or you have the, another side of the amplifying is exaggeration. And this is kind of like the amplifying effect with the generalizing principle. Something happened. It's always like this. It will never change. This is something you can notice as a signal. If you say always, if you say never, it's a signal. There is some grasping going on here. There is some amplifying. Because even if you try to, I remember many years ago, I learned to drive quite late uh, when I was in my 30s in England. And uh, I was always a, a little nervous. Mm -hmm. And in those days, now you can't, but in those days you could uh, lock the key in the car. And so, you know, I do it once in a parking in Totnes and then phone my husband, you know, okay, he comes, the other seat of key with friends. Then, you know, but I don't know, a month or two later, again, I do it again. So I kind of find a phone and I phone, he said, you always <laughs> lock the key in the car. So we had this vision of our marriage you know, and forever after, I would kind of lock the key in the car. And I thought, mm, this is going to be a little tricky. But then I thought, wait a minute. Creative engagement. I don't do it all the time. And then I investigated, when do I did it? And actually, I did it when I had to park in a tight place. So after that, I knew. When I got a little stressed, parking in a tight place, the first thing I went for was the key. And then it never happened again. And then it happened to my husband, but that's another story. <laughs> so in a way, what we're trying to do with the mindfulness is really not to stare at reality, but it's actually kind of becoming interested in contact through the senses and our connection to the world. So I know it might seem a little bit kind of like kind of a self-centered just sitting here, but actually the mindfulness is as much to be aware of ourselves, I would say even more so, of the impact of the world on us, of our impact on the world, on others. And so to start to look kind of like, uh, for example, sight. I think this, this is so interesting, sight. We see something. Can we just see it without grasping at it? And I think this is something I really encourage you during the walking period to just look and do like looking meditation. And so you can do it as you walk or you can do it as you stand and look. And can we look without commenting? We'll perceive a tree, a bird, a bunny, rubbish. So we, we perceive something. It has meaning to us. But can we stay there? Can we just kind of try? Can we just see without commenting, without or if I could only have this, oh, this would be better like that. Can we just, oh, I'm seeing this. Because this is something that we, in a way, because we categorize so much, it's something we do often with people. I mean, you're in silence, and you have all these people around you, and so you see them. And very likely, you have lots of ideas about them. 
this one is like this, that one is like that, just because of what they wear or whatever. The vibes or because they remind you of somebody else, who knows? And what is lovely on the last morning, on Wednesday, is that at breakfast the silence will be broken. And often the people are not at all like you thought they were going to be. And I found that that's why I love the silence in a way. For the, to see what we create on so little information, actually. And to me, one of the beauty of the silence is also how can we be just a human being? Can I see a person as a human being, breathing just like me? To me, this is one of the great, uh, I did not mention it in the guided meditation, but this is one of the practices I like to do is to kind of, when you watch the breath, in terms of the investigation, you go inside the air that you breathe. And you ask yourself, what is this air that I breathe? And when we do that, we actually realize we're breathing the same air. Your air going to my lung, mine going to your lung. And if you wait a minute, I mean, mine is clear and pure. I mean, other, I don't know. You know, so it's funny, we imagine there is this kind of like little bubble around us of nice stuff. Over there, we don't really know. It's interesting. The impression we have when actually just we're all breathing the same stuff with the tree, with everything else, with all the pore of our body. So in a way, the creative engagement is helping us to see more the humanity of the person beyond just by the visual data, what we proliferate or what we exaggerate. This is a fascinating one in terms of just people. Then in terms of being in nature, just can I just see the life? Can I just see the human being? And then notice how it's very hard not to self a bit around it, not to proliferate. How we, 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 and how do we do that? Do we do that in a creatively engaged way? Appreciation, with appreciation. Or do it in, in a kind of like uh, harmful way to ourselves, to others, by comparing ourselves or whatever it might be. Then there is smell. Our smell is uh, great on a, on a retreat. Because, I mean, the favorite one is you share bathrooms. And so, you know, Different people use a bathroom, the toilets. And it's very interesting, the smell after somebody has done a good one. <laughs> or you've done a good one. And it's interesting, ours always smell nicer. <laughs> That's, I find that fascinating, you know. But how would somebody else smell it? That's another story. And what do we do? There is a smell. Hmm? I mean, we can, of course, creative engagement, open the window if there is one, of course. But just to see, there is a smell. What do we do with it? Or if we walk around the garden, and suddenly you smell this beautiful fragrance. Hmm? Where is it? Sometimes you have no idea, so you kind of look. Can we just smell it? Can we just be with it? Uh, Chris has talked quite a lot about sensation, so I won't talk about that tonight. Then there is a taste. Ah, the taste is a great one. Again, on retreat, the last, the last thing that lasts to you, apart from daydreaming when you're sitting in meditation, the last enjoyment left is really the food, and especially with a wonderful cook, then it's... And so first you see, 
you smell, and then you taste. And then there is always a thing that you see something and you think it's going to be good. So then you take more. And then you have that first bite and it's really not what you thought. I had that experience once uh, on a retreat and the person was really kind of alternative, doing all kind of wonderful, healthy thing. And I don't know what it was, but time to time I would chew the salad and suddenly it was so bitter. It was like, <gasps> and then it would be gone. I would chew a little bit and then whop, again. So it was interesting, like, you know, you chew and it's relatively okay taste and then you have a bitter thing, but it did not last long. That's interesting also, time. What happened with time in terms of the contact? If it's a brief contact or it's a long, continuous contact. And so this is interesting with food. Is also the fact that Let's say you put something in your plate and it looks good and it's good. And then you taste it. And because it's so good, you're already thinking of getting second. You've not finished your plate. You barely started, but we already want more. That is interesting in terms of the contact. What do we do? I want more, I'll talk more about that. And then there is also thoughts. I think this is something which is really important in terms of the mindfulness, is that we can be aware of thought in different ways. You can be aware of thought directly or you can be, personally I find often more useful to be aware of thought indirectly, so that you notice, mm, what is it that takes me away instead of kind of like watching the thought like a hunter and then generally they're less there. But trying to anchor in the breath, in the body, in the sound, then we can notice that actually one moment I did not have the thought and next I have it. So we constantly having contact with thought. That also is a contact. And it's a contact which, because it's so us, thought, it's us, that the selfing is so fast, that this thought is true, and this thought is about me. I am my thought. And really one of the things which help us with the mindfulness, with the meditation practice, is to see thoughts partly are like sound. They happen. I am in contact. Suddenly one moment there was no, not a thought, not a certain thought, and suddenly pops, it pops. And then with that contact to that thought, again I have the choice. That's what we're cultivating with the meditation, cultivating the, possibly, the possibility to have the choice. Because we generally stick to the thought, we grasp at the thought, we become one with the thought, and generally we proliferate with the thought, we exaggerate with the thought. And so the mindfulness is kind of saying, oh, there is this thought. I could continue to think it, or maybe not. So in a way it gives us a certain freedom to, to, to notice that different thought will have different effect on us. I mean, one of the things that can happen is you sit in meditation and suddenly because, you know, uh, there is a little more calm, not much is happening, you can have memory pops up. So you're sitting there, the breath, yes. And suddenly there is this memory. This person, they said this. He or she did this. This was terrible. This was awful. And then you moved on into the future and you plot revenge. Very compassionate activity on the cushion. And they'll say this and I'll say that and I'll get them and whatever. But it's interesting. 
It's just, I mean, it can be visual, it can be mental. It's a contact. I can see, oh yeah, this happened. Not fun, but it's gone. It's past. And whatever you imagine in the future, generally the person won't say what you want them to say so you can say something to get there. I mean, the only thing we can do is cultivate now. So it's interesting to, to start to notice that the thought, of course, is different contact. As I said before, you can have light contact, you can have more little habitual thought, and then you are kind of very obsessive thought. So you know the first one, there is very little grasping, the next one a little more, and the third one a little more. So and, and so in a way, when we do the practice here, hopefully, I hope that your thoughts are not so heavy. And then you can see more, oh yeah, there is that thought. It can just come up. I don't have necessarily to stick to it. I mean, we don't, it takes time to have the choice. Because at the, at the beginning, it's just so automatic. But in a way, the mindfulness is help us to developing kind of the, the choice, the kind of the creative choice, I would say. And maybe choosing not to think that thought, or maybe to think another thought. And then there is sounds. So you, we don't, we've done a little bit of listening meditation, we'll do a little bit more tomorrow. And the same, what do we do with sounds? We listen, we hear a sound. Can we just, of course, within reason. Like once, I was uh, long ago, I was uh, teaching in Italy. So it was toward the end of the meditation, it was summer, the window were open, and we kept hearing, Aiuto, aiuto, aiuto. So then I said, what is he saying? He's saying, help, help. I said, okay, let's go and help him. <laughs> so yeah, we could not just say, aiuto, okay, you know, just listening, just listening, just contact, not grasping. You know, you had to creatively engage and kind of, it was lost in the forest. So we kind of, we sorted him out. But sometimes, again, if it's safe and not dangerous, we can just listen to the sound. Just force themselves, not trying to kind of describe or associate. Just listen to the sound. Go inside the sound. And then we can have a different relationship to the sound. But then there is one sound, which at the moment you have not so much opportunity with, but in daily life, you can really work with that. And it's words. What do we do with words? Often we, people talk to us in daily life, we hear words. And this is something, I mean, what is a word? A word, however, the longest word in English or any other language, last a certain time, and it's just like a sonorous wave. The word, and it's gone. So, so I mean, pers personally I would say a word is fairly empty. Often you talk about emptiness in Buddhism, in meditation. I mean, a word is empty. It arises upon certain condition, and then it's gone, but really gone. It's not kind of floating. All the words that all the teachers have said are not floating in this room. They're gone. But somebody says something to you, and you grasp at it. And it's not somewhere. It's kept somewhere. Sticks somewhere. And then you kind of, you know, you sit in meditation, and they said this. You know, you kind of you keep the word. And so really, to me, this is something really important to try to practice in daily life. Creative engagement with word. Because often we hear a word, 
And immediately we identify, this is about me. I mean, somebody says something, a lot of the time it will be about them, not necessarily about you. So in a way, if we grasp immediately, we don't have the choice of creatively engaging and kind of asking, is this about me? Did I really do something? Do I really have to look at something? Or is it just about them and I have not done anything wrong? And so I leave the word with them. Personally, I consider words a little like oranges. Kind of, my husband likes to have a little kind of uh, orange juice, fresh orange juice. So I go and in the market once a week and I go and buy oranges. And generally, I choose the best one. I don't take, like, if it doesn't look good, I don't take it. I said, no, no, I take a good one. And it's the same. I mean, are you going, any words that offer to you? Are you just kind of going to buy it just because it's there? I mean, if it's not, if it's a harmful one, if it's not a skillful one or whatever, nothing to do about you. I would say you don't need to buy it. So in a way, it's kind of like, I hear a word, this thing which is really poof. Can I creatively engage with it? Instead of grasping at it, identifying with it, and limiting, reducing myself to it, and then implifying about it. I think this is so painful. Of course it's not pleasant if somebody says, you know, you are stupid, or you are like this, you are like that. I mean, of course it's not pleasant, but it does not, it does not have to define us. It can just be okay. That's a bad orange. I'm not going to pick that one up. It's not about me. So to me, in the daily life, this is a really uh, interesting practice. This kind of uh, listening, discussion, listening to word. And I mean, the final one about that is about having a discussion. You have a discussion with somebody. So in a way, you're saying words, but the word actually transmitting thought. So here you have the combination of thought and word. And then, you know, somebody said something, you say something, and kind of generally you talk about things. But then the other person is kind of questioning what you said. They think it's not like this, or they think it's different. And what do we think when somebody say, doesn't agree with us? I mean, of course, one method is to kind of talk louder, so then finally they will agree, but I presume you don't do that. And generally, when somebody don't agree with something we suggest, we have the feeling they negate us. They don't agree with my idea, my words. They are mine. They are negating me. But generally, they're questioning your idea. They're not questioning your identity. And to me, this is very important when something, a discussion, become an argument, and generally it's about self-protection. You are questioning me. They're just questioning the idea. And a dialogue means that both of you can hear the other, and a greater understanding can come from two persons coming together. Because there is less of that identification with one's idea, with one's word. So that's for the, the grasping. So you have this moment of contact. You can grasp or you can creatively engage. And then there is another point. And that's what we'll look at tomorrow. And this is not totally easy to meditate with and not totally easy to talk about, but I think it's really essential because I think a lot 
of the grasping come from that. And that was one of the major teachings of the Buddha, was being mindful of what is called Vedana, V-E-D-A-N-A. And this term can be translated as sensation, as feeling, but nowadays, to be a little more precise, people say translated as hedonic tone, that's a little kind of bit scientific, as feeling tone, as affective tone. So let me explain why it's important. So we have contact, we see something, hear something, taste something, smell something, have sensation, have a thought. But immediately at the same time as we have the contact, there is a tonality of experience. That is not just, it has a little tonality, which you can translate as, I like this, I don't like that. So basically, you, the tonality could be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither one nor the other, and we can call it neutral for short. And generally, that tonality is what is going to activate the grasping. Because as the Buddha says, we have an underlying tendency towards different tonality. And so that's where the automatic reaction comes from. Not so much the contact. I mean, the contact is just we're in contact with the world through the senses. But often what is a kind of the trigger for the grasping is that tonality. And so the tonality, I think, is very important to see is just a human capacity. It's a survival mechanism. It's an evolution mechanism, just so that we know this is dangerous, this is not dangerous, this we can eat, this we cannot eat. This is just like a faculty we have to recognize something is pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is kind of a basic capacity immediate we have. And one way to, in a way, know this is just to look at color. We can look at red, we can look at black, we can look at the beige carpet, and you can notice if we look at red, bright red, there is a little tonality. You look at black, it will be a little different. You look at the beige, again it will be a little different. I mean, the color has not done anything to you. I mean, you're in front of bright yellow, bright orange. You have a different tonality than if you're in front of beige or white. So it's kind of like immediately there is this tonality. And so this tonality we often assume it's in the object. Yellow is naturally pleasant, beige is naturally neutral, etc., etc. But actually, the tonality is constructed, is conditioned, is conditioned by your experience, by your culture, by many different things. I lived in Korea for 10 years, and when I first ate their dessert, it was a bit of a shock because I was given this green thing and I tried to eat it and it was like eating plastic. So I kind of, I don't know, I spent 20 minutes trying to kind of chew it and finally managed to swallow it. But what was interesting for me is that over time, I learned to enjoy it. And so now what I do is sometimes when I'm in a place where I can buy a traditional, what we could call rice cake of a certain nature, not the rice cake you have here, very different. And then I'm kind of like, oh, great. You know, this kind of gooey rice cake and all my friends see that, you know, uh, this must be pleasant. Martin looks really like this is pleasant. So, you know, I buy a few 
and I start to eat one. And then I say, do you want one? They think, well, sure. So I give it to them. They put it in their mouth and their face go, we're going to spit this out. So in a way, the thing, the thing itself is not pleasant. Is the acculturation, the various conditions, which makes the thing pleasant for me or not. It can also be weather-related. If it's very hot, ice cream for me is pleasant. In the winter, I see people eating ice cream. I think, I, I could never eat ice cream in the winter. It's unpleasant for me. So you have the same thing. And I'm going to have a different tonality. So the, the slight difficulty when we do try to do this in meditation, so one of the things we do is try to be aware of this tonality. The slight difficulty, especially if we see it uh, here, is that the tonality will be fairly neutral. And again, this we can talk about it if we wa you want or not. Uh, there is a huge debate about the neutral tonality. Some people think it doesn't exist, some people think it like this, some people think it like that. We won't go into this technical detail. But to me, part of the meditation process on a retreat is actually to become familiar with neutral feeling tone. The fact that a lot of the time, our tonality is relatively neutral. Not much is happening. But what is interesting is our reaction to it. How are we with that tonality? So there is a text at the time of the Buddha. It was a nun explaining this subject. And so what she said was that as long as an unpleasant tonality continue, it is unpleasant. But when it stops, it can become pleasant. And I presume all of us know this, when we stop having a headache, a backache, a stomachache, we're so aware we don't have it for about a week. And then we forget it, we think it's normal. So we go from being unpleasant to becoming pleasant not to have it, and then it becomes neutral because it's just normal. As long as the tonality is pleasant, it continues to be pleasant. When it stops, it can become unpleasant. And here, we have to be very careful. Because personally, I think the neutral tonality is a baseline. And I think we go up, we go down, and then we come back to neutral. It's kind of a little like homeostasis, a way for the, the body and mind to rest a little in this neutral. But often what happens is that we might have a really pleasant experience. And then for whatever reason, it stops. And in a way, instead of coming back to neutral, because it stops, impermanence, because we don't have it anymore. Oops, it becomes unpleasant. But we left with the impression this was so pleasant. But in a way it has become unpleasant not to have it anymore. I had this experience some years ago where I did something really was fun, great, I come back, and then suddenly up, the thing shifts. And I realize, you know, it cannot continue. So I said, okay, drop it. And then I go back up to uh, my apartment. And then two hours later, I am saying something unpleasant to my husband. And I think, he has not done anything. Why am I saying something unpleasant to him? And then I retrace it. And I see that as I go up the steps, suddenly the shifting from pleasant becomes unpleasant. And then the problem with the unpleasant is that it's spread. And then 
we redistribute it to others who might have nothing to do with it. So this is why, in a way, the mindfulness of the feeling tone is so important. In terms of seeing, when it's pleasant, as Chris said, appreciate it. When it's unpleasant, recognize it. And when it's neutral, the text says, if you don't understand neutral, it becomes unpleasant. If you understand neutral, it can become pleasant. And so I think it's interesting a bit, kind of, I would say, the challenge of a meditation retreat is a lot of the time, not much is happening. I know you might have read about, oh, if I sit in meditation, I'll have great insight, great meditative experience, or, or great kind of mindfulness and peace and calm. I mean, you might have it time to time, hopefully. But a lot of the time, not much happens. You just sit there. <laughs> and it's fairly neutral. And then the question is, how do you interpret that? Do you interpret this as, this is boring, my life is boring, Everything is boring. This is more likely to happen in daily life if there is lots of neutral. Or do you interpret it? This is generally what I do. Mm, this is restful. At least nothing bad is happening. I met a lady once. It was wonderful. I was talking about this. And she said, oh, I get it. I arrived in London from my country and I thought, God, oh, London, it's so boring, nothing is happening, I don't know anybody. Pfft, this is really unpleasant. And then she said, I had really bad toothache and I realized before was much better. <laughs> there was a difference between just neutral and very unpleasant. So the 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 mindfulness is to notice, because as the Buddha says, if it's pleasant, the underlying tendency is to want more. I want more. I want to repeat it. I want to continue. If it's unpleasant, oh, I don't want it. I don't want it. I don't want it. If it's neutral, mm, I am not sure about that. So in a way, the, the, the thing about the mindfulness is to see the tonality, see it more. Instead of, recently I uh, led, uh, I organized a conference on this subject, and somebody was saying, tonality, you recognize it after the fact. Once it made you react, it already made you act in a certain way. And so with the mindfulness, we're trying to see it more at the point of contact. There is a contact, What's the tonality? So it's kind of really to become more aware of that because then we can become more aware a little bit of the tonality, of the kind of reaction to the tonality. A good example, you have a good weekend with your friend. Oh, it's so much fun, so wonderful. And you leave the house and you say, Let's do this again. Basically, you're saying, let's try to recreate exactly the same condition so we can have exactly the same feeling tone, which you can, you might not. You could recreate, with other conditions, you can recreate another pleasant feeling tone, but not necessarily exactly the same one. We have to be careful with that. And I think tomorrow I'll talk more about this, but we have to be also, the mindfulness help us to see the unpleasant feeling tone in such a way that we less reactive to it because the thing is that we need more pleasant, like I would say on a zero to 10 plus five, pleasant to think, wow, this is great. We just need minus one unpleasant. This is unpleasant. This is kind of like the, 
there is study about this scientifically proven that we're more aware of unpleasant than pleasant because, I mean, it's for survival purpose. It's quite necessary. And so, in a way, again, I think if we're more aware of the feeling tone, we can see more the gradation of it, the 0 to 10, the minus 1 to minus 10. We can kind of have a, uh, a more wise kind of creative in engaging with this feeling tone. And then just, I'll finish just with a, a little story. And tomorrow I'll talk more in terms of how to practice uh, the feeling tone in the instruction. And here he's talking about newness. The newness of the contact and the newness of the tonality. And how we grasp at the newness, which has a connection with the meditation. So this is a, a story about mushrooms. I was in Austria at the right time, and we are going to a restaurant, and there was chanterelle, one of my favorite mushrooms, and it's the only thing I could eat anyway. So I have this plate of chanterelle, which has little trumpet-like orange mushroom. And I taste each of them, and they're delicious. And I would say in terms of tonality, they're like, Nine, each of them, oh, oh. So I finish my plate, we go out of the restaurant, and then I check. Because you have the contact itself, the tonality of that contact. Then you have the contact with the memory. And so I check, because I have a little theory about this. So I check. I come out of the restaurant, check the memory of the chanterelle, and I think, wow. Seven. <laughs> the tonality of the memory seven. So of course the next day, because I have a theory about this thing, I go back to the same restaurant. I get the same plate of mushroom. And I eat my first mushroom the second day. And it's six. <laughs> the same mushroom, six. I come out of the restaurant, the memory down to four. What happens here? What happens is that often we grasp at the newness because I had not had them for a long time. They were amazing. But you cannot recreate the newness with the same thing. And so in a way, we have to be careful in terms of the meditation because when we start to meditate, Often because of the newness. Ah, oh, this is nice. I am a little calm. I'm a little clear. Wow, this is amazing. In comparison to before. Once I was teaching and a young fellow came. And he said, wow, it's fantastic. I am not my thought. This is so great. I love it. I want it to last forever. And I said, that I cannot guarantee, you know. This also is impermanent. And to see that often, at the beginning when we start to meditate, we might have experience of that nature, which are generally very pleasant. And they really, ah, oh, wow, this really makes a difference in my life. And then we continue to meditate, maybe for three years, five years, ten years, anything, but why don't I have this amazing experience anymore? This, wow, this is amazing. The problem is there is no contrast. The more you meditate, the less contrast there will be because you become more calm, you become more clear. And so you're not like you were before when there was very little calmness or clarity. And so we have to be careful with that in terms of uh, the newness and the tonality of those experiences. And my time is up. Thank you very much. So is it relatively clear uh, about this tonality? Can you make a little sense of it? 
and then tomorrow I will give instruction on how to cultivate mindfulness of it and talk a little more in different way about it. And then you can try it out and then before lunch we can have a, a discussion to check how clear is this. Because it's not obvious, especially when it's fairly neutral. To me, it took me a long time to understand this. Because I would sit in meditation, I would say, okay, where is the feeling too? Where is it? Where is it? And I would not find anything until I realized I found the neutral feeling too. That's why I'm a fan of the neutral feeling too. I'll talk more about this tomorrow. Thank you. So now there is some walking meditation.